good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll talk to the two leads of Steppenwolf Theater's hit play, King James. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to discuss Irish Theater of Chicago's new production of Molly Sweeney. Later, I'll catch up with New York Times bestselling author Austin Kleon to talk about the 10th anniversary of his hit book, Steal Like an Artist. And we'll hear all about an indie film with local ties that's available to stream for free. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. One of this year's most talked about plays is coming to a close this weekend. Steppenwolf Theater's world premiere King James has garnered critical praise, commercial success, and whispers of Broadway. Written by Steppenwolf Ensemble member Rajiv Joseph, the play tells the story of an unlikely friendship set against the backdrop of NBA star LeBron James's career. At the center of the story are Sean and Matt, two men from the Cleveland area that love the Cavs, and LeBron James, a.k.a. King James. I recently caught up with the actors who play Sean and Matt, Glenn Davis and Chris Perfetti, to talk about their journey to bringing this world premiere to life. I do get, because it's called King James and I'm in it, people would ask me, hey, are you playing LeBron? And I would go, LeBron is 6'9". I am 5'10 on a good day. So let me... um, let, let me let me say first and foremost, I'm not playing LeBron. I call LeBron the monster in the closet. It's a <laughs> storytelling term where he's ever present. He's always there, but uh, he does not make an appearance on stage. Right, right. This is Glenn Davis. He plays the Sean character in King James. And last summer, he was named one of Steppenwolf's two new artistic directors. He says his connection to King James goes back several years to when he was working with Rajiv Joseph on another production. Rajiv and I worked together on a previous play called Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. Had been in conversation about this play, um, King James, far back as maybe five years ago. And so when he first pitched it to me as an idea, I was really excited. I thought, what better way to bring together the things that we love most, theater and basketball. And um, our our collective love for sports really um, really drove uh, this play in, in terms of its creation. So when he first told it, told me about it, I was in from the jump. And then when he delivered the first draft, I was really just blown away at, at how he executed that idea. So I know there are some people that might think this play is all about basketball. That's definitely a part of it, as is LeBron James, but... Those are just pieces uh, that are kind of in the the background. What this work is really getting at uh, and really getting into is the dynamics of adult friendship. Yeah, that's exactly it. I call it a meditation on friendship between two guys who don't really have the language 
to talk about what they're feeling at any given time, but they know they love sports and they have a, a passion for sports. And so the trajectory of their relationship is very much along the lines of LeBron James's career. And you see them, you know, I often say about plays, well, people often say about plays, you're witnessing these people, these characters on the best and worst days of their lives. And so as you can imagine, LeBron has had a very dramatic career from being drafted by his hometown team to leaving that team to go play for Miami and the fallout that occurred in the Northeast Ohio area around his his having left. And then his returning triumphantly uh, and winning a championship for his hometown team. So, and then obviously he plays for Los, Los Angeles Lakers now. So he is, you know, routinely considered, you know, uh, one of the greatest basketball players of all time uh, in the top 10, top five. And many call him, you know, uh, uh, top two uh, with Michael Jordan. So I think that, you know, the best and worst days of a lot of people's lives are when. Uh, LeBron has either delivered a championship to, their, to them or he left them to, to, to go play for someone else. So I think you see that in this play, and then you see how that fallout affects these guys' relationships with one another. Starring opposite Davis on stage is Christopher Perfetti, who plays the character of Matt. You might also recognize Perfetti from his role on the new ABC sitcom Abbott Elementary, which has been a breakout hit. He remembers the first time he read the script for King James. I remember thinking two things when I first read the play. One is that, like, uh, I was surprised how much I laughed out loud. That's kind of like my my um, litmus test of, of, like, whether I think something is genuinely funny or whether I am jealous and want to be a part of it is, like, if I laugh at it out loud, particularly in a public place, that's kind of like... Um, a good sign. I remember thinking how funny it is. And then I remember thinking how terrifying it must be for whoever, whatever actor, you know, is going to do it and has to learn all of those lines. Like, it's just two, it's just two people in the play. And Rajiv is, who wrote the play is kind of a master at like capturing really natural yet idiosyncratic dialogue and so there's lots of very short exchanges that like at first glance as an actor I was like how the heck is anybody going to remember that because it seemingly is so so casual and so random and like now after having done the play I realized that those you know are the only words that could be said in those moments and so it makes perfect sense and it's again he captures real life in a way that like is so brilliant that like I can't imagine saying anything else but I remember thinking holy moly that's a lot of lines because <laughs> um, it's really you and, and Glenn on stage for the whole play right yeah and talking like not shutting up it's not like a play where you watch us you know you know build a car or something or <laughs> you know paint a picture it's like we're just talking to each other and so so obviously anytime you know, with live theater chemistry is important but with something like this where it's really the the two of you just carrying the this whole thing how important was it for you and glenn to develop chemistry did you guys get together before rehearsals yeah that's a great question i've, I've known glenn for a little while i've i i started off just as like a huge fan of his seeing him in plays and and then there was a period of time in New York where, like, I felt like I just kept running into him. Like, we were at the same places, which was so um, weird and cool. Cause, um, but, yeah, that's a huge, it's a huge part of 
the play. I mean, I think luckily for us, like, uh, what these characters go through together is, is a lot. And we spend a lot of their lives, you know, uh, in the play. And so we see every kind of color of their relationship. So like we see them hating each other and we see them loving each other. And so that kind of makes it easy in the sense that like, you know, Glenn and I, who don't particularly know each other that well, or didn't before the start of the play, like, could at least have something to, because the play shows so much, we have, you know, whatever, at least some of what the play is showing. But I lucked out. I mean, Glenn is an extraordinary human being, in addition to being, you know, one of my favorite actors. So it's not hard to have chemistry with Glenn, I, I feel like. And, you know, we're very different people, which I think helps which I think serves the play, but I think we have a lot in common too, and that's what makes doing the play with him so fun. Let's listen to a clip from King James and this introductory scene set in 2004. Sean asks Matt how much he wants for his Cavs season tickets. I'm here about your uh, season ticket package. Yeah, right. Are you still selling it? I mean, I guess. Well, are you or aren't you? I'm only selling it as a package. I'm not selling games piecemeal. That's what Cedric said. Yeah, Cedric explained that to you? I was wondering about the price. Uh, Cedric didn't know. I tried texting you. You tried what? Uh, oh, your phone. Do you receive text messages? You mean like email? No, text messages. Isn't that what email is? I have a good phone. It's a Motorola Razr. It's slim. How much are you asking for them, for the tickets? Before I go quoting prices, I just want to be clear about what is actually for sale here. Okay? Sure. Look, Cavs have 19 home games left this season. I have season tickets, which means I have two tickets to every one of them, including premium games against the Lakers, Celtics, Pistons. Lakers, that's next week. Shaq, Kobe, you could scalp that pair alone and make half your money back. So for these remaining 19 home games, I want 6500 which is a deal. You want $6,500? Yeah, which is kind. That is me being kind. Sorry, man, no way. I wish you'd just texted me back. You would've saved me the trip no, over here. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Let me see your phone. So you have 73 unread text messages. <laughs> Look, people can send you messages on your phone. Oh, that's crazy. Look at all these people. Oh, Amanda texted me? Yeah, man, so that's why you need to check your texts. That was a clip from Steppenwolf Theater's world premiere, King James. You're listening to the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with the two stars of the play, who you just heard, Glenn Davis and Christopher Perfetti. The play explores the challenges of maintaining friendships in adulthood. The play explores the challenges of maintaining friendships in adulthood, especially among men. I asked Perfetti if he thought more about his own personal friendships while working on the play. I'm like in the place in my life, getting to the point in my life now where like I'm about to have known, you know, my best friends longer than I haven't known some of them. And so, and that, you know, that happens in the play. These, we see these guys over the span of 12 years starting, you know, on the day that they meet. 
Yeah, I think like I think like what's particular and extraordinary about this play is another theme, motif, whatever of it is is this idea of loneliness and isolation and 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 sort of related to that like how hard it is for a lot of men to, you know, talk about certain things. It is making me think about my own friendships, but I feel like I am, I have looked out and met some, a lot of really amazing people. And I don't know that these characters have a lot of amazing people in their lives, or at least they think they do. You know, Rajiv was really attracted to this idea of loneliness. And and he's often described like the first instance of the play as being like, you know, the two loneliest people in Cleveland happen to be in the same bar, happen to find each other, and for various reasons, need each other. And so I'm definitely calling on my own close friendships to imagine what it would be like to go through what these characters go through in the play. But I'm also very cognizant and grateful that I, that I am not the character in this play. You know, that I have, I've been, I've been really lucky to like have some amazing close friendships. Meanwhile, Davis grew up on the south side of Chicago. He says sports always played a big role in his friendships. I am a huge sports fan. I grew up, uh, like you said, on the south side of Chicago. Um, I became a Bears fan. Uh, Sweetness, Walter Payton is my favorite football player of all time. Michael Jordan is my favorite basketball player of all time. You know, I, I grew up watching the White Sox and the Cubs and in recent years, the Blackhawks when they had their dynasty. So I'm a huge uh, sports fan. I am. Uh, I grew up on sports, so this was very much the language that I spoke. People in my family uh, relate to this play greatly because they see themselves in this character, Sean. You know, um, I, I talk to some folks in my family who don't really have the the language or can't really articulate the, the, the um, emotional side of, of their lives or, or their person. But when you get to talking about sports or you talk to them about uh, um, who's the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or, you know, Bill Russell or LeBron James or Magic Johnson or Larry Bird, they speak with such fervor that it looks like they're going to get into a fight sometimes. So um, it's it's an interesting dynamic to have that play out right in front of you on stage where I've had so many people, so many friends who I went to high school with, college with, or uh, I had a military serviceman come up to me the other day and said, hey, I saw myself, I know exactly what those conversations are like, and I've never been to a play in my life. So um, I think I think uh, Rajiv has done a really wonderful job of um, personifying what it is to be a, uh, a huge sports fan, and, and, and really that be the language that you speak. King James was originally part of Steppenwolf's 2019-20 season, the pandemic forced a postponement. The play represents a return for both Davis and Perfetti. Both had not performed on stage in front of a live audience in over two years before the opening of King James. The last play I did was at Steppenwolf. Prior to me being artistic director, I did a play called Downstate in um, the fall of 2019, which feels like a lifetime ago. Right, right. Uh, but it was a, a Bruce Norris play that we did, and um, uh, it was, it was, we then took it to uh, the National Theater in London uh, that following spring, and it was it was uh, universally recognized. It's just a beautiful play. And um, I had a great time on that. And that was the last time I'd, I'd worked on stage. And so 
we were supposed to do this play, King James, in 2020. So uh, it was, you know, I was not supposed to go three years without having done a play in three and a half years, but um, the pandemic saw to that. So we pushed it back two seasons, and now we are here. It's been a long time coming. But um, as, as Kenny, our director, would say, it happened when it was supposed to happen. And um, we all the elements were in place for us to have a have a, a dynamic piece. And I think Rajiv brilliantly has, has orchestrated an experience for the audience that is not to be missed. I think this, this is one of the best plays I've ever done and uh, one of the best experiences I've ever had. It's been amazing. It's been sort of surreal and, and honestly, like, overwhelming at times. It's it's. It's so nuts because especially this play that is like so funny, um, it really requires that like an audience sort of buoy it and like help establish the rhythm of it. Um, And so like having that and having such a generous, you know, for the most part, large and engaged like audience at Steppenwolf is, has been amazing but there is something that I can't really describe that like feels kind of like the rug is going to get like pulled out from under us. Like it feels too good to be true. Like it's, it's, it's crazy being out there and like seeing an audience, you know, who are all still thankfully and amazingly like wearing masks in the theater because they're all, you know, right next to each other, obviously. Um, but it's it's just been so long too that like it feels like something that wasn't going to be able to come back and so for me it's still in this place of like this just feels totally surreal but it's mostly great <laughs> it's mostly great <laughs> in addition to enjoying their time working on king james both perfetti and davis are enjoying tremendous professional successes outside of the play Last summer, Davis and Aubrey Francis were both named Steppenwolf's new artistic directors. So congrats on the new gig. What have the the past six or so months been like? It's been amazing. It's been amazing. We started, Audrey and myself, Audrey Francis, a wonderful actor and director herself. We started uh, September 1st of 2021. And so... um, one of the reasons we we really wanted to uh, take on this job is that we saw that um, the theater industry in general, we wanted to be a part of the change that we want to see in the in the theater industry. And among the tapestry of American theaters or theaters in the English-speaking world, Steppenwolf looms large. So the opportunity to leave this institution at this time, this moment, was hugely appealing to us. So we took it on. And, um, and yeah, and, you know, I'm on stage right now. She's going to do a play, uh, next season. We are, we are, we, we, it's a great partnership and we, um, yeah, we're, we're thrilled to be leading at this moment. And Perfetti is getting critical praise for his work in the wildly popular ABC sitcom Abbott Elementary. The show is set at a public grade school in Philadelphia and is presented in a style similar to The Office, where there's a camera crew following around the various characters, which include teachers and school administrators. I have to talk to you about Abbott Elementary. It's getting so much positive attention, and in a time when there's so many options uh, out there on TV, people really seem to love this show. What's it been like watching the reaction to Abbott Elementary? Thanks, man. Um, 
it's been so cool, Gary. It's like, uh, it's also sort of like overwhelming. It's, it's, you know, I always thought that the show was brilliant. And, and so to see that, like, it's resonating with people is, is, is very cool, but it's not something that I think most actors would say they are, you know, they plan on, they plan for that future. I think actors have to get really good about like things not working out. Otherwise they would, you know, last a week in this business, but Abbott is amazing. I said to somebody the other day, I feel like I'm like set for a, for a dopamine crash because there's so much like good stuff going on right now. Like the people that tell me how much Abbott means to them. And then, you know, the fact that I'm doing this play that I love and am very proud of. It's like, it's very cool. Abbott's amazing. I think Abbott is in many ways, like, I think the reason it's resonating with people so much is because, is because, you know, largely I think, the country just needs a place to laugh right now. Like, I think it's a, it's a surefire sign that like people are still recovering from some of the last two years. We have a whole new set of crises going on and people are looking for a place to laugh that is not cynical. And I think it also just mostly speaks to the unbridled genius of Quinta who made that show. I think she's doing something new. I think people are having the reaction to it because they're seeing people in a show that they haven't necessarily seen before and and everybody kind of has that has some reference point for that setting you know like we were all there and so everybody has kind of potent memories of of you know that crazy teacher they had or the that they had to eat for lunch or you know like everybody did it and so everybody can kind of relate to it so it's great. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing we talked about was your reaction to the King James script and your uh, kind of your laugh out loud test. I'm imagining that when you maybe when you read the script for some of the uh, Abbott Elementary episodes, was that something where it, you put it through the same test? Yeah, for sure. There's a there's a similar test, which is like I feel like when I read something and I can I can see it like I can see that character and I feel like I I know that person I mean and not just in the sense that like it it is close to me or like comes easily to me um but just like when something is written so well or specifically that like uh you it's just very clear to you um Abbott definitely passed passed that test for me too in addition to just being so stupid and goofy and funny (laughs) That was Christopher Perfetti. He's one of the stars of Steppenwolf Theater's world premiere, King James. We also heard from the other star, Glenn Davis. The play is set to close this afternoon. There are a few tickets left. Then it heads to Los Angeles, and there are rumblings that it will make its way to Broadway. You can find more information at steppenwolf.org. Silk Sonic, a group made up of Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack. They were big winners at last week's Grammys, picking up record and song of the year. 
Just a quick reminder, if you enjoy the arts section, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartssection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures that go along with all the features you hear on the program. Visit theartssection.org. You are listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. Joining me now remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. Irish dramatist Brian Friel's 1994 play Molly Sweeney is getting a new production at Irish Theatre of Chicago. The work puts a spotlight on the main character, Molly, who has been blind since she was a baby, her husband, Frank, and an eye doctor. The latter two want Molly to undergo a surgical procedure that could restore some of her sight. And for some of us, this might seem pretty straightforward. We all seemingly would want the ability to to see. But Jonathan, this play explores some unexpected questions. Well, it does indeed. And to put it at the most literal, and they do this uh, fairly early on in the play, and then they go to you know, deeper levels of abstraction and profundity. But at the simplest level, if you have been blind all your life, uh, from birth or from 10 months old, in the case of Molly Sweeney, and now age 40, you suddenly have your sight restored, would you know if a face of someone looking at you was a happy face, a fearful face, or an angry face? If you had learned to recognize a ball by touch alone, when you finally saw a ball, would you know what it is by sight Unless if somebody didn't tell you? Uh, and, and it's the very simplest level. This is what confronts Molly Sweeney. Um, but we very soon understand that Molly's sight was restored, but at the cost of her vision, in the larger sense of vision. Yeah, and, and, and that's really... The, the central premise, the central argument in this 1994 play by Brian Friel, who was a richly, deeply humane writer, and he's often called the Irish Chekhov because of that. Um, Molly's vision has been informed and shaped entirely by sound and smell and touch and taste, which she doesn't regard at all as limiting. She inhabits a full world with confidence and independence. She's very sociable. She holds down a job. She's a championship swimmer. And, you know, in a day of surgery, all of this changes for her. Carrie, what did you think? It's interesting because you said she has a job, and her job is as a massage therapist. So literally, touch is how she, you know, supports herself in the world. I think this is a, a piece that's a little bit of a, continuation, although not, you know, in pure narrative, of uh, an earlier play by Friel, Faith Healer, which also is a, a three interlocking monologues involving two men and a woman who's kind of, you know, uh, 
set amongst them and trying to negotiate her way through the world. And I do think that that's what a lot of this play in Molly Sweeney is about. It's about, as you said very eloquently, Jonathan, a woman who has been restored to sight, but not necessarily to an understanding of what this world now means. Um, in some ways, I think the, the plot is not too dissimilar from Flowers for Algernon, the sci-fi novel of the 60s, which was turned into the movie Charlie. Now, that involved a young man with intellectual disabilities who is uh, given an experimental surgery that, at least for a short time, seems to raise his IQ, but completely changes his relationships with the people around him. And that's very much what happens with Molly. So, yes, in part, it's cautionary about the idea that we think we know best for you, that we that we see a person as disabled and think, well, why wouldn't they want to do this thing that would improve them or better them without fully understanding what their world is already like. So that's one part of it. There is a moral conundrum. But I think there's also a very deeply humane, aching sense that all three of these characters, and that's Patty Rice, the doctor, and Molly, and Molly's husband, Frank, are in some ways kind of blindly searching for connections. Uh, we get the sense from Frank that he's very much a guy who likes projects, one of his early monologues. He's telling us about trying to raise Iranian goats uh, on, a, on a remote island outside Donegal. And, of course, it goes very badly because he has no idea what he's doing. And according to him, the, the goats are on Iranian time, so he's getting up at, like, 3 in the morning to feed them. But he's somebody who seems to want a project, and he seems to see Molly in some ways as a project and not as a fully realized person unto herself. So I think that's a really big part of what real so beautifully lays out here. It's a, it, It's funny. It's aching. And I think you you can, you know, even if you're not a big fan of monologue plays in general, and I know there are people who sometimes feel like, well, they just seem a little static. I don't feel like this production at all by Siri Scott is static. It, it grows and it encompasses and it brings us into Molly's world and really gives us a sense of what she has lost by the end of it. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you know, I, I was taken by a line that Molly had. She talks about uh, the night before the surgery. She has her friends and her husband, Frank, who gather around her, the people that she has known only by sound and smell and mm -hmm. touch and taste. And she says, she says, she understands. She says, I will never again know them as I know them at that time, at that right. moment. Everything will be different, and for her, it, it does prove to be a, a catastrophe. Uh, yeah, Frank, her husband, is, an, is a serial do-gooder who's worked, <laughs> worked for not-for-profits around the world, and he's the first one to encourage Molly to have the surgery. And it certainly is worth mentioning the third character, the brilliant eye surgeon, Patty Rice. Uh, his career and his marriage both have taken wrong turns, which is how he's ended up in a small-town Irish country clinic. So that he and Frank both have personal agendas, as you said, and for which Molly is the field of dreams, that they're going to play out these, these mm -hmm. personal agendas. Um, the, the play is set in uh, Ballybag, a fictional small Irish village where, that, that, that Brian Friel invented. And he set several of his plays there. But there's nothing particularly Irish about the story, though there is about the characters. Mm -hmm. But Friel, of course, was an Irish writer. And his fictional Bally Bag, a little country town, offers a glorious physical environment, as it's described to us, of flowers and woods and lakes and oceans, which Molly fully inhabits. Um, 
his language, which this is true of all his plays, Brian Friel's language is lovely uh, throughout. It's thoughtful, yet plain-spoken. It's poetic, yet not obviously so. It's dense, but it's never tiring to hear. Uh, and, and that's a, a, a good hat trick to pull off. Right. And I think what's beautiful in this production, yes, we do hear about the flowers. One of the very first monologues we hear from Molly is about her father, who was a judge. Her mother was sort of in and out of mental institutions. So her father, really, you get the sense, is one who raised her. And he would take her into his garden and have her identify by feel and scent all the flowers um, that, that he was growing. But none of that color is in the set. It's a very gray, kind of almost looks like little battlements. You know, it's like a broken, you know, almost like a old, old ancient settlements or something and these walls and, and little outcroppings on which the actors sit. So you get the sense that they're in this sort of, this sort of netherworld or a, or a limbo, something very purgatorial about it um, in, the, in the set by Jesse Baldinger, which I think is appropriate to the story. You know, we're in this, she's literally now in a gray zone. Her, her vision has not been fully restored in the way that we might think about full vision, and yet something crucial about the way she negotiates the world and the way she literally feels herself to be present in the world has been taken away from her. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm here with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. We're talking about Irish Theatre of Chicago's new production, Molly Sweeney. Now, the play, the script itself, as, as Friel wrote it, calls for the three characters to be physically separated on stage. They never come into contact with each other. There is no dialogue. They each are delivering a monologue in pieces, and these pieces are intertwined with each other. So they each have a turn and then comes back again and so forth. And uh, Jesse Baldinger's scenic design, I described it, I would describe it as a curving gray slate wall. That's kind of the... Mm -hmm. And the curves kind of cocoon each player in a semi-abstract space, but it's designed with a little stone bench for them to sit on and a lectern-like ledge for them to lean on. And then you have the lighting by Smooch Medina, which adds some warmth and a little blush of color to this otherwise gray set. So it's a good physical production. And uh, I really liked the acting. Carolyn Cruz is a very, very handsome Molly. Uh, Matthew Eislar was Frank, and Robert Kozlarik was Mr. Rice, Patty Rice. They are focused and engaged under director Siri Scott. And, uh, it, it just really, really worked. And, and uh, I, I absolutely yeah. agree. And I think the tough thing, particularly for the men in this, is, you know, Molly, our sympathies are naturally going to go to her. Um, but even with, with Rice, who, who is alcoholic, who has lost his wife, who seems to have some bitterness on, about all of these things, <laughs> You know, there's the way that Kozlarik plays him, we feel sympathy for him, although I don't feel that as an actor he is ever pushing us to feel sympathetic. He is giving right. us insight into this man who has his own self-loathing, his own regrets, and we are drawn to that. We may not fully um, sympathize with the actions that he has done or his motivations, we should say, for that, but we understand, and I think that is the key to Brian Friel, and I think perhaps that's why the Chekhov uh, comparison gets made so often. And in fact, he's done his own, or had done his own adaptations of short Chekhov stories, and I think some uh, his own translations in the past. As with Chekhov, the characters can sometimes be ridiculous, they can sometimes be venal, 
they can be quite self-interested, but they are never less than fully human, and we cannot help but listen to them and watch them and want to know how they are coming along in their journey. Absolutely. Uh, for me, this play, Molly Sweeney, also channels Sophocles' seminal tragedy, Oedipus the King, because uh, that play is concerned, it contains a, a devastating delineation and distinction between seeing and understanding right. and perception. And this play picks up some of the same themes uh, and ideas. Sounds like two pretty strong recommendations. Irish Theatre of Chicago's Molly Sweeney continues at the Chopin Studio Theatre through May 8th. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. welcome. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. Ten years ago, Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist, Ten Things Nobody Told You About Being Creative, was published. A few months later, it became a New York Times bestseller. The book is a manifesto of sorts about the creative process and what it means to be influenced by the work that's come before. Steal Like an Artist was inspired by a commencement speech Cleon delivered in 2011 where he highlighted 10 things he wished someone had told him when he was starting out at their age. There are some readers who bristle at the term steal, but to Cleon, stealing is an easier way to explain the way creatives are influenced by others' work. The Austin-based writer has re-released a 10th anniversary edition of Steal Like an Artist with a new afterword. I recently caught up with Cleon to talk about the creative process and looking back at his book a decade later. What's it been like revisiting Steel Like an Artist 10 years later? Well, it's been so strange. I mean, my, my theory of reading is that books don't change, but we do, and that makes them new books which is why we can read the classics the way that we do. You know, you can read Moby Dick when you're 18 and it means nothing to you, and then you read it when you're 35 and all of a sudden it feels like the Bible, you know? And so um, it, that's doubly layered as a writer in that, you know, you're reading this book that you supposedly wrote, <laughs> you know? And so it's like revisiting myself in the past. But it's a funny book because at the time I wrote it, I was 27, and I was writing it for the 19-year-old version of myself, the, the, the version of myself that I thought, you know, could use some advice. And now, of course, I'm, 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 I'm about to turn 39, so there's actually more space in between me now and the me who wrote the book than there was between the me who wrote the book and the person he was writing it for. And so it's just a, it's a loopy, it's, it's, like, a time, it's like a time machine, which I think a lot of books are. There's a, a new afterword at the end of the, this new release with some contemporary reflections. You write about the words influence and steal. Have you found that some people still have this apprehension about the way you use the word steal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's still people who say to me, like, well, why do you have to use that word? Why can't you just say, you know, be influenced like an artist? And uh, and I always tell them, well, you know, the reason I use the word is because I'm not very original. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I use it because so many of the artists I studied who came before me used it. You know, someone like Pablo Picasso saying, 
you know, artist theft, or David Bowie being asked if he was original and saying, no, no, I'm more like a tasteful thief, you know. Um, I, a lot of the book's genesis um, was me sort of collecting these quotes from all these artists who talked about stealing. And the thing I, you know, found out very quickly is they were talking about this kind of like, uh, you know, they say there's no honor amongst thieves, but there is when it comes to artistic theft. There's a there's a way to steal that's good, uh, that's more of a Robin Hood act of where you take really great bits and pieces of the things that have come before you and you, you know, kind of weave them into your own work and then you give it back to the world so that people can steal from you. And, and it's very much about seeing yourself as part of a lineage um, and, and seeing yourself as kind of a a link in a chain that goes backwards and forwards. And so that, that, that was really the, the, the kind of genesis of the book, was seeing if you could lay out an operating manual uh, for people to, to steal well. <laughs> right, so this idea of taking ideas uh, and then you know creating something new. The Internet helps us share our ideas more readily easier and you touch on that uh in the book in a couple different chapters uh but also then the internet also you know there's anonymity uh are you concerned when people just take ideas and pass them off as their own yeah i mean you know one of the things that uh that the hard thing about a book is you know um lichtenberg said a book is like a mirror if a jerk looks in a jerk looks out and so there's you know there's there's a lot of people who hear the title steal like an artist but they only remember the steal part and they don't remember the like an artist part <laughs> so it's like um you know i think we live in this world now where it's it's the culture is kind of caught up to the message of the book i it's almost become a a mutated version in which you know we kind of live in this cut and paste digital endless copy kind of world now and i think in some ways it makes the book even more relevant because in this kind of culture of endless spin-offs and and knockoffs and people copying each other all the time you know, it's a good thing to remember that the greats, they studied deeply and they went back in time and they didn't just skim what was going on at, in, the, in the wider culture. They went back in time and, and borrowed and stole from sources ancient and, and foreign, and they really looked for inspiration in wide-reaching places. And I think we're at a time in our culture in which we need to start looking uh, for sources for our own work outside of, of the, you know, kind of the, the status quo and, and everything that's going on uh, online. One of my favorite ideas that you highlight comes from author Jonathan Lethem, and he says that uh, when people call something original nine out of ten times, they just don't know the references or, or the original sources involved. Maybe that sometimes gets lost on people still? I mean, this is such a great... I think it's the first step as a creative person is to move beyond just being enamored with the creative work that you see and to start studying it in a way that you can sort of figure out where it came from. It's almost a kind of like, I don't know, um, artistic genealogy. So, you know, if you, um, you listen to the Beatles and the Beatles, you know, if you're a young kid, it sounds like the Beatles came out of nowhere. Um, but then, you know, you listen to some Everly Brothers and some Motown 
and some Elvis and some, you know, you start swimming upstream and all of a sudden you can see where the Beatles came from. But it isn't that it detracts from the work. It actually makes it deeper and richer. And you can see, you know, what they stole and, and, and how they changed it and how they transformed it into their own stuff. And so I do think that that's the first step for someone who wants to get a little bit deeper in their creative work is to become that kind of cultural genealogist where you do reach back and figure out where stuff came from. So we talked at the the beginning about you, you know, what it's been like revisiting this. I know after Steal Like an Artist came out in 2012, it was a bestseller, and then you've written other books since then. So, you know, this time has passed in your life. When you came back to Steal Like an Artist, was there a temptation to to change anything? Because other than the afterword, the the actual book itself is, is unchanged, right? Yeah, it's um, it was one of those things where I felt very much that the book had sort of become it belonged more to the readers uh, than it belonged to me Um, and so I wanted to try to update it in a way that it could you know have a new nice kind of spiffed up form um, and find a new audience but then also appeal to the old uh, the older audience that's been with the book for a while and I I think that's why I picked an afterword. I I didn't want to do an introduction, and I didn't want anyone else to write an introduction to it because I I didn't want the book to lose its kind of punky energy. You know, it's a very fast book, and it goes by quick, and I didn't want it to lose any of that energy. So I I basically kept it the way it was, and and we just added the afterword to give it a little bit of depth uh, from the perspective of 10 years. And readers are going to use it uh, how they see fit and project their own ideas. Do you have, uh, I mean, from your perspective, for people that, that haven't picked it up, I guess, do you have like a way that you, you want people to use the book? Well, the greatest compliment I get from the book is people who tell me, you know, they tell me two things that I think they're a little bit embarrassed about and they shouldn't be. You know, one of the things is that, you know, I, I, I only got halfway through your book and I put it down because I just had to make something, which is the greatest compliment. Uh, the other joke is that, you know, people keep it on the back of the commode uh, to, to inspire them in their, in their down moments. And, and both are great compliments to me. I want to really meet people where they are. I, I don't write books so that people can spend a week or two just uh, you know, kind of lost in the book. I write books that they can spend about an hour or two with and then spend the rest of the week working off the, uh, off the, off the juice they got from them. And I know the focus is on the, uh, the 10th anniversary of Still Like an Artist, uh, but after that, do you have something else coming up? Um, you know, a lot of... I've sort of gone back to my roots in a sense in that, um, you know, all of these books, all of my work really started with my blog online. And so I'm kind of like revisiting my roots and I'm, you know, writing in a different form now. I'm actually doing a newsletter now, which I, which feels very much to me like some of the early days of blogging, uh, especially the comment section. I, at this point, I think I learn as much from my readers as, 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 they do for me um it's certainly a two-way street and so that's what i'm really loving right now is is, is writing my newsletter and that's at austincleon.com if anybody wants to read it all right well i've enjoyed uh reading steel like an artist and i appreciate you taking time out of your data to talk with us 
Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure speaking to you. That's Austin Cleon, the author of Steal Like an Artist. A special 10-year anniversary edition of the book was just released. It's available everywhere books are sold. You're tuned into the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. Profound grief, comedy, an eccentric cast of characters, and open roads are among the ingredients in the locally produced indie film, Monuments. The movie comes from Chicago-based filmmaker Jack C. Newell. The Glen Ellen native wrote, directed, and produced Monuments, which is now available to stream for free. The plot centers around a grieving widower, Ted, who's trying to cope after the sudden death of his wife, Laura. There's a disagreement between Ted and Laura's family about how her ashes should be laid to rest. The result is an unconventional road trip movie that mixes humor with a bit of melancholy. The origins of what turned into monuments can be traced back to a short story authored by Newell's mother-in-law, Marianne Fonz. It's a short story about a man and his wife who in the short story, they're at dinner with friends, and the conversation leads them to, like, if you died, where would you want to be scattered, being buried or scattered, and she was like, I'd love to be scattered at a museum. She eventually dies in this short story, and then um, he breaks into this museum and scatters her ashes. Newell connected with the story, having dealt with grief as a young adult when he lost his mother and brother in a short period of time his senior year in college. He decided to try his hand at adapting the story into a film script with the help of his wife, Rebecca Fonz. Yeah, it was a family affair, the whole thing. whole family was involved. I caught up with Newell in one of the theaters inside the Second City to talk about his journey to make monuments. Newell says he started writing the script over five years ago. When I sat down like, I am writing monuments, I wrote it from start to finish at a coffee shop, because that's where I like to work, in like nine days. So like I'd go every day to the coffee shop, write, for as long as I could, which is not super long. I don't have a lot of stamina as a writer, so it's like usually like a couple hours of writing. And that is actually relatively quick, you know? It's not like Paul Schrader riding taxi driver with a pile of cocaine over a weekend, but it's like, it's relatively quick. But then the rewrite process and the revision, that become, that's what takes a long time. After experimenting with improvised dialogue in his last feature film, the 2015 indie Open Tables, Newell approached Monuments with a much more specific vision for what he wanted. Coming to Monuments, I was like, I want to have a film where it's like, this is the script, where we're going into production with the best script that we could possibly do. So we're not making it up on set. We're not improvising. That's not really this movie. It's just, how do we do that? So that just means like the development process takes a lot of time, which is fun and frustrating and, and all those things. I think the number one thing that we did in this film that was probably the most exciting was we tried to prep it. So I, I'm the director on it. Stephanie Dufford was the DP and Matt Hyland was a production designer. We've all made a number of films together. And one of the things we wanted to do was try to prep Monuments, a small, independent, quirky, whatever, idiosyncratic film, uh, indie film, like a huge Star Wars or Marvel movie. Because the way that those movies work is they just have, they spend more time prepping, like actively prepping, where people are getting paid, you know, their day rate, you know, getting paid to just work on getting the movie ready, you know, storyboarding and design and all that other stuff. And we said, if we were able to emulate that in an indie way, could we prep this movie for months? So we actually met for six months, once a week, and a lot over email and text, just meeting every week for like six months, just prepping. And then I was able to take all of that prep work that we were doing and then take it into rewrites. So the development was really exciting. And that's why I think you really feel the, the film feels that you can sort of feel that. I think maybe when I say that, it's like, oh, I could start to see how these things start to come to life. 
some listeners might have this preconceived notion of like an indie film dialogue heavy gritty few locations because you know, of budget reasons but this is wide open where did you end up shooting this it is wide open it was very ambitious for for the budget and for all that other stuff and so we filmed majority in chicago and chicago land we were never in chicago the longest we were at any location was the field museum and that was for two days but every other day we filmed we were at a different spot north side south side joliet uh field museum I mean, West Side, way, 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 way West Side. There's like that uh, that pancake house in that at on North Avenue, like a million. It's like a million West North Avenue, whatever. Like, it's um and these crazy hotels. I mean, just all these locations that like you can't. They're just very far away from each other. So it, it, the simple answer to your question is: we shot in Chicago, we shot in Boulder, Colorado, and everywhere in between. How involved are you in scouting locations? Yeah, deeply. I mean, and a film like this especially because it's so much of it is like wanting to make sure it looks the way you want it to look. And part of the process of scouting is you start to then block out or play out in your mind how this scene is going to go. And you can then, let's say you get to a location, you're like, we love it, and then I can rewrite the scene based off of the location for any sort of things that happen to be there. You're always, as a filmmaker, you're ideally coming in with a plan. The plan could be we're going to make it up on set. That is a plan. And that is like in the other films I've done, improvised, that is the plan. It's like, we are planning to make this up. Sometimes you come in and it's like, we're not making any of this up. But you always have to do a little bit because of a billion reasons. Let's listen to a clip from Monuments. In this scene, Ted, played by David Sullivan, joins Laura's family for a ceremony to lay her ashes to rest, but changes his mind after seeing a vision of his deceased wife in the distance. I don't think I'm ready to say goodbye. I don't know how to handle you. You're actually being gone. This doesn't feel right. I can make it right this time. I can get us out of trouble, I swear. Amen. Amen. set her free. She told me Chicago is the answer. When? Just now. I saw her as like a vision. What, like as a ghost? I'm gonna get you so completely. Hey, it's his wife. Just let him go. That was David Sullivan as Ted in the new film Monuments. The film also features Marguerite Moreau, who you might know from a number of projects, including Wet Hot American Summer, and Javier Munoz, who starred on Broadway in Hamilton a movie about a cross-country road trip to spread your spouse's ashes as her family and obsessed admirer chase you might not scream comedy. Newell says there was obviously a lot of attention given to the film's tone, and that starts with the script. There's three levels, maybe. There's the script. The script tells you what to do, how to do it, uh, where it's happening, right? Directors really only do how, really, you know, and actors to a certain extent, but the script does most of the stuff for you, but it doesn't do all of it. Right. So part of the job when you're doing it is to figure out how do you want to interpret the text and realize it with just the performers. But then another layer that layers on top of that. So the third layer is how am I going to photograph it? How am I going to shoot it? And actually, there's a fourth layer, which is how am I going to edit it? And then what am I going to do with music? 
Because I could take a scene of a guy crying on the floor and score it with clown music, and it would, I don't know if it'd be necessarily be funny, but it would be different than what we do right now, which is just, you just hear him, there's no sound, there's no music, it's just being in that moment with him. So there's all these different levels, and so when it comes into like the filming of it or how you approach it, what we try to do in terms of the tone is just play every moment real. Like, you never want to go for comedy. I don't think. I mean, there's probably examples when you do, but like you just play the scenes, like play them as real as you possibly can. And then communicating with your actors who are your chief collaborators and your director of photography and your production designer to make sure that we all know, like, how do we want to approach this? If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking to Chicago-based filmmaker Jack Newell about his movie Monuments. The indie film had a limited theatrical release last summer. It was distributed by a small Pittsburgh theater, Row House Cinema, that's experimenting with a new film distribution model. It's an exciting opportunity for filmmakers and for audiences, I guess, because the way that things have been trending is that, you know, your movie's either in, like, six theaters or, like, 5,780 and like this movie is not going to get into 5,682 theaters. So what Row House is trying to do is is approach it from like an art with their art, art house sensibility, indie sensibility. And, you know, they saw the film. We went to some film festivals. We won a couple awards, which is awesome. And, and Brian at Row House saw it and was like, hey, I think, you know, we're trying to launch this new thing, which is essentially a distribution company for theatrical, so movie theaters, to show films that aren't like the you know, the huge movies. Yeah, without getting super technical, it's like a lot of the times people think of indie as basically anything that's not, let's say, a Disney, Disney movie. And so we have a very broad definition of indie or independent in this country. And and, and there's really stratifications within that. And like an independent film that's made for our budget, which is less than a million dollars, far less than a million dollars, and an independent film that's made for $5 million are very, 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 very different. They're both technically indie. Indie is such a weird, outdated thing from like the studio system from like the 60s and 70s doesn't even make sense anymore. Row House was able to do this thing where they could put together, you know, a theatrical run for this film. And we're in like 50 cinemas nationwide, some of them in person for those places that are open. Some of them are virtual screening rooms. The question is like, what is what, what I wanted? It's like, well, there's a lot of things I want, Gary, but you don't get everything you want. So this is just a, a really wonderful way in which it came together. That's Jack C. Newell. He's the writer, director, and producer of the film Monuments. The movie is currently available to watch for free through the Tubi platform. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the program's website at the artssection.org you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program my name is gary zydek i hope you'll join me again next sunday morning at 8 a.m right here on 90.9 and 90.7 fm for another edition of the arts section until then i hope you have a great week thanks for listening enjoy the sunshine Oh, 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 oh.